Thanks for listening to today's message. We hope that it will encourage you and help you live out your faith in everyday life. Make sure to download our church app by typing Comox Pentecostal into Google Play or the App Store to enjoy more podcasts, Bible resources, giving options, and more. We are into our third week now in the book of 1 Peter. I hope that you have been taking some time in your own weeks to read through this book as well. It's full of thought and helpful uh, direction from God for our lives. It's short, but it's punchy. It spoke to the moments uh, that the original audience was living in, in the first century ancient Turkey. And like the Bible so uniquely can, it speaks directly to our lives and lifestyle in 21st century Canada as well. And so I want us to open our hearts today to the direction that we're going to be going. Just uh, for those who might be joining us for the first time, like, okay, First Peter, what, what's this all about? Why? Uh, what's the relevance? How does it speak to us? The book of First Peter addresses uh, these fledgling little churches in uh, what's now modern Turkey that had formed, and there was surrounding pressures, uh, social pressures, political interference. Certainly there was a nervousness about uh, the political influence in the country. Was it trustworthy? All that kind of stuff. And there were cultural pressures as well. I think you and I know that, you know, we live in a world where we can share in some of those experiences. The Christians at the time felt especially marginalized. They felt especially on the outside. And so Peter writes to them to encourage them. Many of them have begun wondering, because of these pressures we're feeling, does that mean that we're actually off track, that we've missed the point? Maybe this whole Jesus message isn't all that we thought it was going to be. Have you ever had a hard time in your life and questioned your faith in the moment? That's what they were going through. And so with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Peter writes a letter to be sent to all these little churches to encourage them. And if I had to summarize First Peter in three words, it would be this, withstand by witness, withstand by witness. It was sort of Peter was just saying, listen, you'll be able to withstand these pressures the more you're conscious of how God's placed you deliberately in these places to bring his hope, his peace, and his help to our world. I've also put it this way, a bit more wordy, but it helps us understand Peter's purpose and how this book speak to, speaks to us as well. First Peter is written so that strangers could withstand the surrounding pressures and win the respect of those who don't know Jesus yet by insisting on continually doing very good things together in everyday life to enemies and the receptive alike. I think that speaks to us in our moment and in our day and age as well. Why the word strangers? This word shows up often in Peter's writing. In fact, last week we spent a lot of time. He even calls us aliens at one point. He's pointing out that, yes, we are marginalized, but it's because our citizenship is actually linked somewhere else. Yes, you might have a Canadian passport or a passport from somewhere else, but when you decided to follow Jesus, new life was given to you. That means a new, a new passport was also issued to you. There is a heavenly relationship that you have with God, that you, your life is now built upon and oriented around. And it does mean that we are different. And so there's this tension that we find ourselves living in as followers of Jesus in this world where we're like, at times, I just really don't feel like I fit. I don't feel like I belong. I feel on the outside. I feel different. 
Sometimes my beliefs or the way I view things or the way I value things are different than the world around us, and people think I'm strange because of it. And so we live in this tension of like, but I want to fit in because I don't like feeling unaccepted. But at the same time, to be true to ourselves and true to the living Lord Jesus Christ, we can't bend on faith or ethic or moral. And so Peter writes to a church that was experiencing some of the very things that you and I feel as well in our day and age also. The reality is he calls them strangers and aliens and foreigners and exiles because they were strange. And you and I are strange too. I mean, we poked a little bit of fun at ourselves last week. We talked about communion in our tiny shot glasses and horrible little pieces of bread that we, you know, why not a better meal than that for communion, you know? No wonder some people are thinking Christians are strange. Well, yeah, there's incredible meaning and purpose behind the act of communion for us, but it's not easily understood by others, right? So it does seem weird. Or baptism. Why in the world do we have a hot tub under the drum set? Why do we take people to the ocean in the middle of winter and baptize them in cold, cold waters? Because there's tremendous, rich symbolism and purpose for it. But yes, of course, it's strange. I was thinking the other day, you know, when we gather together, like for most of us, if you come to a church gathering on a fairly regular basis, we just begin to accept everything that we do as quite normal. But I mean, try to come in here with the eyes of somebody who's never been in a place like this before. It's weird. I mean, it's really weird. Uh, you know, sometimes we raise our hands when we're singing. It's like, well, what are you reaching for? Is, are you trying to change a light bulb? Or is, what's going on? Do you think you see something that I can't see? Are you trying to hug God? What's going on? Um, clapping is another funny thing. We all get together. We stand or sit in rows, and then we sing some words on the screen. And for whatever reason, we think it would be really great if we just started banging our hands together at the same time. And so we clap. Uh, now, I know that that can happen at concerts and stuff like that, but maybe us churchy people are more clappy than other people. I'm not sure. But it's, it's funny stuff. We're different. Don't make it weird but accept the reality that because we follow Jesus, there are things that are different about us. There are some things that are maybe a bit more periphery, and then there are some other things that are absolutely core and central to who we are as followers of Jesus. Legitimate differences that will make people think that's weird. Example number one, exhibit A, the resurrection. There are historians who are very glad to accept that Jesus was not just some sort of fictional character, but that he legitimately walked the dusty roads of the ancient Near East of Israel, that he brought a great message, that he was a teacher of compassion, that even seemingly miraculous things occurred because of him, and they did, that's our faith. But what becomes most offensive about the gospel message to people in our community is not necessarily that Jesus existed or had good teachings or even died for his cause. It's this notion that he rose again. Some people think that, oh, you got to be careful when you talk about sin because that's the most offensive part of the gospel. It's not. I think if you're human, you know what it's like to make a mistake. You know what it's like when the inside of you is very broken and it hurts other people and you even continue to hurt yourself and it's created a sense of distance between you and the divine. That's sin. I think all humans are like, you know what? I get it. I'm a mess. That's not that offensive. You know what's offensive? This idea that Jesus died, but didn't stay dead. That's hard for our brains to accept. That's strange. 
everything in the Christian faith hinges upon the resurrection of Jesus. Because if he didn't rise from the dead, it's just another kind of nice philosophy, maybe a decent faith system. But if he did rise from the dead, it's absolutely revolutionary. We cannot ignore it. We can't. There's so much more I could say about it, but I'll direct you to books if you're interested on that one. First, here's the thing. Speaking of the resurrection, first century Christians were thought to be atheists. Did you know that? By their surrounding culture and world. The Romans did not understand Christians at all. They said, you're atheists. Where is your God? Everybody had gods that they could see everywhere. But these, this strange sort of side Jewish sect that called themselves followers of the way and later got labeled Christians, they're like, these are weird ones. This isn't a faith system. They're atheists. They have no God. Where's their temple? You see, the followers of the way, they, they did not go to the Jewish temple for worship any longer, especially outside of Jerusalem. Where's God? Where's your temple? You are atheists. Today, I just actually want us to address a little bit of that pressure that these early churches felt that Peter's writing to. This, How do I answer to this, where is my God, where is my temple kind of question? We're going to turn to First uh, Peter chapter 2 in just a moment. But before we go there, I want to ask you, no cheating, no, no looking at your Bibles. Can anybody shout out off the top of your head, what's the first word in the book of First Peter? Therefore, yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> Somebody else? Greetings. greetings, not greetings, not therefore. Peter. The first word in the book of First Peter is Peter. Now, it was customary in ancient letter writing to actually open your letter most often with your name. Introduce, so everybody understands who's, vo- you know, when we write letters or emails now, we put our name at the bottom, Right? But when they wrote in ancient days, they're like, which voice should we be imagining is saying this to us? So he opens with his name. And Peter's name is important to him. Why? Not just because it's his name, but who gave him his name? Jesus did. You see, he came into the world being named Simon, and Jesus met him and called him Peter, which is, you know, it originates from the Greek word Petros, which means rock. It was kind of this picture of strength and stability, a foundational kind of character upon which something great could be built. It was quite different to the character that we knew Simon to be prior to that. Even, even while Peter was learning to follow Jesus, my goodness, he behaved much more like his former self than the Peter version of himself. But isn't it wonderful that when he writes this letter, he starts with this word, rock, his name, acknowledging that Jesus has reformed the way I have lived my life. He changed my identity, and I thank him for it. The idea of rock was very important to Peter. It was identity. But here's the other thing. This whole idea about uh, a stone or rocks was actually a really incredibly important thought for Jewish people of the day. And Peter came out of a Jewish background, and many of these first followers of Jesus in these churches were Jewish too, and they were very familiar with the Jewish story. And this idea of a stone, this idea of a rock, was a very important idea. It was a very important word for the Jewish people. In fact, there were certain scriptures in the Jewish scriptures that they would hear repeatedly recited to one another as if to give a sense of hope or peace or truth to one another. It spoke into the Israelite story and narrative, and it speaks actually into the story of Jesus and our story as well, this idea 
of a rock or this idea of a stone. There's a few scriptures they heard often. Many of them would have memorized them as well. Let me introduce a few of them to you. Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. This is sort of a prophetic, poetic language that features uh, this verse. It says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, or Jerusalem, God's city. I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who trusts will never be dismayed. So there was sort of this, this peak you know, peek into the future in the book of Isaiah that one day there's going to be some sort of character or image or thing. Is it a temple? What is it upon which everything can be built? A cornerstone. You see, an ancient building, if a building was built entirely out of stone, the most important stone from the, off, from the beginning was, was the cornerstone. It was the first stone laid in one of the corners. And it was so important that it would be straight and perfect and exact because upon it, everything was built in every direction, to the left, to the right, and up. Everything hinged upon the strength and security of the cornerstone. Psalm chapter eight, uh, 118, verse 22, another very familiar uh, verse to the, to the Jewish, Jewish people. The stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. What's this idea of the capstone and, and builders rejecting it? So there's this language about a building project going on and a bunch of stones are laying around and the cornerstone's been set and more building is going on and they come to this one stone and it's a little different than the rest and they think, you know, it doesn't seem that it's going to have a place. It won't just fit anywhere here, so we're going to discard it. We're going to bypass it and just keep building their building. And as they're about to complete the building at the very top of the wall in the corner, they're like, my goodness, we need a stone that's shaped exactly like, hang on, remember that one we passed earlier on that we didn't do anything with? It's still, actually, that's a perfect fit for there. That became the capstone on top. So there was cornerstone language and capstone language, very important to the Jewish people. Look at this in Isaiah chapter 12, another important stone language verse for them. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy, just as a refresher if you missed out. Holy is a happy word in Bible, not a scary word. Think last week we talked about Miss Vicky's chips and Lego because those are happy words too. I got a picture sent to me this week from somebody in the church saying, look, we're finding holy chips and they were sending them, sending them apart. If that does not make sense to you. Watch our message from last week. He will, and this is what it says, and he will be a sanctuary. But for both houses of Israel, he will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. So there's this connection between stone language and God becoming a sanctuary somehow, and then also at the same time, this stone causes people to stumble or fall. Biblical scholar and historian N.T. Wright says this, the great hope of Israel was that the true God, Yahweh, would return to Jerusalem or Zion at last, coming back to live forever in the temple. Once, that is, it had been properly rebuilt so as to be a suitable residence for him. If you were with us through this past summer, we studied the book of Mark. And Mark relied heavily on this little book in the Old Testament called Malachi. And one of the main thoughts in Malachi was, wait, we built a temple, but there's actually no evidence that God ever came back to live in it. We need God back. N.T. Wright carries on, find the right stone and you may be on the way to building the new temple, ready for God to return. 
So there's a clear connection that begins forming in our minds between this idea of, of stones being assembled into some sort of temple. What did the temple mean to the Jewish people? Three things quite quickly for you. The temple, number one, is a place where God lives. Number two is a place where heaven and earth meet and mingle together. And number three is a symbol of hope and peace. It meant hope for the Israelite people. When they saw their temple was built and doing well and God was living in it, there was hope for them as a people. There was hope for their future. It was a symbol of peace to them. There's a great psalm, Psalm 73. You can read it sometime. It's so, it makes so much sense in our day and age right now to read Psalm 73 because the psalmist writes about how chaotic the world is and everything seems upside down and, and corrupt people seem to prosper and righteous people who do the right things seem to fail and have mistakes and hardship come their way. And he can't make sense out of anything going on in the world until, he says in one verse, until I entered the sanctuary, the temple. All of a sudden, peace came to my mind, and I saw that God has a grander thing going on than just what I experience in my chaotic experience of life. So with these things in mind, turn with me now to First uh, Peter chapter 2. Those of you who have Bibles, like physical ones, I love the apps, they're great too, but some of you just make some Bible paper noise, and it makes me really happy. I know that you're with me. Let's start chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, I want us just to read through this text, pause at a couple spots along the way, but I hope it sort of pops in a new way for you now with some of this historical stone language in mind. As you come to him, the living stone. Have you ever read that and you're like, what in the world does that mean? I think we have a better grasp of it now, don't we? We come to Jesus and he is the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Isn't this a beautiful illustration? There is a stone who is Christ. And wait, who are we? We are all living stones. And we are being formed together into a new people of worship, a new home for God in this world. We are holy priests offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For scripture says, it's going to sound familiar, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has now become the capstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that causes them to fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. Verse 9, but you, let this speak to your soul. Have you ever felt misplaced or unwanted in this world? Here's a great message from God's heart for you. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So, the Roman onlookers who had a, a follower of Jesus, a follower of the way of Jesus in their neighborhood in one of these scattered cities that Peter's writing to, to, 
to the Roman who was a co-worker of one of these followers of the, the way, to, to the Roman who they're going to high school at Highland or Isfeld or Vanier with one of the students in these cities who's looking at these followers of Jesus thinking, you're weird. And they're saying, I think you're an atheist. Where is your God? Where is your temple? Peter replies under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit with this language about stones. We're following a living stone, and you and I have become living stones, being assembled together to form God's new temple in the world. This series is called Stranger Things. Peter calls us strangers all the time. The first week we thought about how we're citizens. The second week we thought about how we're aliens. This week, I just want you to know that God wants you to remember that you're a temple. We're a temple. It's nice to have a church building. It's nice to have property, to have the opportunity to steward and plan a future for, but this is not a temple. This building is not holy, nor is this sanctuary or auditorium or whatever you want to call a room like this. You are. We are. Paul says, don't you know that we have become the temple of the Holy Spirit? So what did this mean for first century Turkey? And what does this mean for 21st century Canada? How do the words of first Peter chapter 2 speak to then and now? I think it's as if Peter's just trying to say maybe three things. Number one, don't forget there's hope and peace for you. Number two, don't forget that there's hope and peace for others. And number three, don't forget that you're dangerous. Why would I say that you're dangerous? You are a place where heaven and earth meet. I want you to think about that for a moment. Let's think historically through Scripture. In the Garden of Eden, as you look at the beginning of Scripture, the story, beautiful poetry and imagery, it's wonderful, tells the story of how things came to be, and there's this garden, Eden. And there's one meeting place of heaven and earth, right? And it's there. And we even read about God, the gardener, walking in the cool of the day with his people in this meeting place of heaven and earth. And then there's the fall. Humanity chooses independence instead of dependence upon God. And so creation is corrupted, and now instead of one meeting place for heaven and earth, on earth, there's zero. The story of scripture unfolds. The people of God are held captive as slaves in Egypt, and then they're set free, and they begin their journey into a new land, into a new future together. And what's one of the first things that happens? A tabernacle or a sort of a, a pre-temple is built for them, and what's happening now? There's now a new meeting place for God and people. There's a meeting place of heaven and earth. So now there's one again. And then later on, a more permanent temple is built, and God's presence gloriously fills it. It's a beautiful story. It's a wild scene. There's fire. There's smoke. There's, it's wild. It's wonderful. Heaven and earth are meeting again in a powerful way. So again, there's one meeting place on earth for heaven and earth. Fast forward. Jesus arrives. Now what's going on? There are now two places on earth where heaven and earth 
are coming together. The temple in Jerusalem and Jesus Christ, who is now this living temple, a living, walking gateway of heaven realities coming towards earth. Think about his crucifixion. What's one of the stories associated with the death of Jesus? It gets me every time. It's a wild one. What happens in the temple? It's shaken. And this curtain that separates the the part of the temple called the most holy place, which symbolically represented, this is where God lives on earth. It doesn't get any more pure, more holy, more rich in his presence than this. There was a huge curtain. It was 70 feet tall. It was at least three inches thick. It tore in two at the crucifixion of Christ from top to bottom. No person could do that. It was an act of God. It's as if God, who was in the most holy place, sat up stood up, ripped open the curtain and said, there's no separation anymore. And then in John chapter 20, the risen Jesus Christ speaks to his first followers and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. Now we don't just have a couple meeting places of heaven and earth on earth. There's at least 12. And then in Acts chapter two, it says the spirit of God was poured out upon the early church. 120 were gathered together. Now we have 120 spots on earth that are meeting place between heaven and earth. Later in Acts chapter 2, what happens? A message goes out about Jesus. 3,000 people decide, I'm in, I'm following that. They're baptized, and then what happens? The movement grows by 3,000. Now the world has 3,000 meeting places between heaven and earth. The book of Acts advances more. 2,000 more are added to the church. And then later on, we find of this movement that continues to pick up and grow and permeate through the earth. You're dangerous today if you follow Jesus, because in you lives the Spirit of God. And wherever you go becomes an opportunity for God's heavenly work to flow through you. Think about it. For most of human history, that was so limited to just one temple or one place. And now it's unlimited to wherever you and I will go, as long as we're conscious of the reality that God is in us, with us, and would love to do things through us. Peter is writing to this pressured church that's unsure of their future and their feelings, and what do we do with all of this? And he's saying, don't forget, you're a temple. The hope and peace that Israel always associated with their temple, it's for you right now. The hope and peace that's in you, it's for others as well. And this makes you dangerous to the works of darkness in the earth. Because God's alive and interested in working through you. And that's destructive to the work of evil on earth. That's good news. You see, Psalm 73 said, The chaos of the world didn't make sense to me until I entered the sanctuary. On the other side of the cross we realize the sanctuary entered us. It's it's resident in you. I wonder if Peter was thinking at all about his friend Paul, who we read in the book of Acts, who was imprisoned for his faith at one point with his friend Silas. You know the story, many of you. What happens to them? They're in prison. And they start singing hymns of faith in prison. This wasn't a posh, comfortable prison. It was, it was terrible. And in one of their worst moments of existence, somehow their faith 
overflowed into praise to God. How does that happen? I'll tell you how it happens. They're a temple. There's hope and peace for them in a prison. And it turned into hope and peace for others through them. Our church supports many missionary partners around the world, and one of them, um, they're no longer serving in uh, Ukraine, but uh, the wife is from Ukraine. And her sister has been, uh, her sister who still lives in Ukraine has been posting regularly uh, from Ukraine, just updates. And in a recent missions committee meeting, Jennifer McQuaid, who leads our missions committee, read one of these posts as a devotional to us, and it was stunning. This woman included some lines like this, I have decided no longer to focus on what this war has taken from me but I want to write about what it's given to me. And then she began listing wonderful things that have come into her life as a result of the war. How does a human do that? I'll tell you how. You're a temple of the Holy Spirit. You can have a war going on around you. You could be in a prison cell, and there's real hope, and there's real peace available to you because God lives in you. think of a gentleman who in the last six months began attending our church family here in our second service. A senior fellow comes as often as he can with his wife. I've gotten to know him and his story a bit. His wife is suffering often and she's doing her best to cope. And I have just so admired how he patiently, lovingly serves and supports her. It has to be so difficult for him. He has to feel so helpless. I'm sure there's times it's a great interruption to their lives and to his hopes. How do you do that? How do you do that? It's not normal. It's not natural. Except if you're a temple and you have real hope and real peace from God living in you as a supply. Some of you would have seen in our weekly e-bulletin, the news that our dear sister Joanne Mentis passed away a week ago today. She lived an exemplary life of faith and hope, perseverance, remarkable trust through a long season of physical suffering. How, how do you finish well like her? You're anchored to a reality. You're a living stone in a building where Christ is the cornerstone and the capstone. And there's hope that's available that helps you to persevere. I think of Bonnie Kirk, who's in this service with us, who's a friend of Joanne and helped to coordinate care and support for Joanne through her final days. It's remarkable. I mean, in our world, why give time to stuff like that? Live for number one. No. When you have God alive in you, when you're part of his temple, there is real hope, there is real peace, there are new impulses to serve, to help, to care, to be compassionate when it's uncomfortable, when it's inconvenient. Why? God's alive in you. We're, we're a temple. A few weeks ago, I saw uh, something on Twitter that informed me. A, a sweet gentleman from our church would be performing in a jazz show in town. Jeff Gopsowitz plays trombone. And um, I thought, oh, 
Laura and I should go check this out. So we went to this event. It was stunning. It was unbelievable. He's part of this five-piece band. He wrote a number of original pieces and, and incorporated other pieces as well. It was just an awesome time. There was maybe 100, 150 people packed into this place. We had a great time together. I was so proud of just this ability and skill. I thought, this is amazing. And toward the end, Jeff, who um, he probably is very upset at me for even bringing this up or bringing him up right now, but I was just so proud. He's a very sweet, unassuming gentleman. And he doesn't like the stage, doesn't like spotlight, but there he is performing and, you know, introducing some songs along the way and put his trombone to the side, went to the microphone and introduced a song that he wrote in tribute to his mom, who died early in the pandemic, not of COVID, but of other complications. And he took the stage for about a minute and just in such a gentle, kind way, talked about his mom, talked about her heritage, which is Ukrainian, spoke words of peace over Ukraine, spoke words of peace over Russia and Russian people, and then just spoke about a real hope anchored in God. And I thought, that's beautiful. That's the kind of thing that I think a temple can do. You serve well in the community with gifts and talents and abilities that God has given you. You don't go out of your way to grab a microphone and make it weird. You do it tastefully, kindly, and thoughtfully, and it blesses people. Hearts are open to this idea of a God of peace who cares about Ukraine and Russia, and my goodness, he cares about me too? Yes. Yeah, he does. You see, you and I are meeting places for heaven and earth, and that day in the flying canoe, Jeff opened up a doorway for heavenly influence to 100 or 150 so people that were in that room that day. What, what doors does God open for you in your neighborhood, in your school, in your workplace? You're a meeting place for heaven and earth and you're dangerous. You're dangerous. A few years ago, um, there was a neighbor that we got to know fairly well, um, lived in the neighborhood that we were in at the time. Uh, we met her through our sons who became friends at school. Her name was Nadine. And uh, Laura would have tea with her fairly often. She'd come over to her house. And then she came to a few of the parties that we would host in our home for our neighbors. And she would hear people say things every once in a while, like, see you Wednesday. And she'd be like, what's Wednesday? Oh, a few of us, like, we get together, we read the Bible a little bit. We'll pray together for each other and pray for things. And we eat a potluck meal together. You're welcome anytime. You know, if you're not too sure about the Bible stuff or the prayer stuff, you just stay for the meal and then leave, or you can stick around for all of it. It's up to you. And she said, oh, I might come sometime. And so she started coming from time to time. She loved her potluck meal times together, but she also was quite curious about the times that we spent when we'd open the Bible and then pray. And, you know, she just got to be an onlooker, like, okay, what? Isn't this just an old book and irrelevant? But it seems to be meaningful to them. It seems to have a sense of life to them. What do I do with this, you know? And one time we had looked at a particular story in Scripture, and I just said, why don't we just get into small little groups of two or three and pray with each other really quickly? And so... Um, to ensure that Nadine wasn't uncomfortable, my, my wife Laura, she's like, I'll just grab Nadine and take her aside. And I, you know, there might be somebody else in our small group that wants to make it weird with her, so we'll just protect from that. And so <laughs> Laura takes her aside and just has a conversation with her. And Nadine kind of says, so we're supposed to do like a prayer thing now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Would you like to do that? Is there something I can pray for for you? And she said, well, you know, Laura, as you know, um, I'm separated from my my husband right now, and I just, I don't, I don't know, I don't know what to think. 
I actually don't know if I have a will to see it work out. She was the one that actually created a bit of a problem in that relationship and moved along. And so Laura said, well, I guess we could pray about that if that's what you want. Yeah, yeah, let's pray about it. And I don't know if you've had the joy and privilege of praying with somebody who has no sense of faith in Jesus, but they're open in that moment. It was the most exciting thing ever for Laura because she started praying. And Nadine doesn't know any of our silly cultural things we do as Christians when we pray. She didn't fold her hands. She didn't close her eyes. She just watched Laura talk. It's great. That's totally okay. That's wonderful. You don't have to do our things, you know. And so she, she watches Laura. And then Laura just prays a simple prayer. Nothing complicated, nothing weird. Just prays for God's blessing and help. And, you know, would you open her heart? And would you, would you help her to love her husband in greater ways? Amen, blah, 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 amen. And Nadine leans forward to Laura. She's like, that was the most amazing thing ever. Like, what was going on? And Laura's like, well, I was just sort of like, I was just praying. She's like, when you were saying like, can you help Nadine's love for her husband grow? She's like, I could feel it growing in my heart in that exact moment. This is amazing. Sometimes when we get familiar with prayer and God, we forget that it is amazing and that God's leaning in with interest and that when you and I pray, there are heavenly realities that flow through our lives and make a difference in our world to the point that Nadine's heart opened again to her husband. And within weeks, as a small group, we put a gift package together because Nadine and her husband got back together. And so we sent them on a date and we provided babysitting and we celebrated and we looked back, whoops, we looked back and thought, wow, how does a marriage get saved, that's on the rocks. I don't know, it would take a miracle. It would take something from heaven busting through one of us, helping somebody along the way. You're dangerous. Because you carry that same kind of help and hope and peace. And when we work together, it's even more dangerous. (laughs) You're a temple. Who remembers what the first word in the book of 1 Peter is? Peter. Without looking, can anybody guess what the last word in 1 Peter is? Jesus. Isn't that good? Um, as you study ancient writing and, and scripture writing, there are times that certain authors go out of their way to make sure their writing lands on the most powerful note possible. And so as you look into the Greek, Peter arranges a bunch of words so that while you may have been introduced to a rock idea at the beginning, a God who transforms identities and turned him from Simon into Peter, we're finished not thinking about Peter, but thinking about a living stone upon whom you can build your life, upon whom we find meaning and purpose. I wonder if I could pray with you today. I need to ask you today, is Jesus to you a stumbling block? or a building block? Is he the cornerstone of your life? Is he the capstone of your life? Or, you know, it's, it's really convenient. It's actually popular in our Western world in nominalistic versions of faith just to keep Jesus sort of to the side as an accessory. You know, he's not the cornerstone. I'll, I'll keep that place for myself. Thank you very much. But look, I've got Jesus here as one of the nearby stones. It's not how it works. You're building a wrong temple. God's not filling that. He fills temples where Christ is the cornerstone. And maybe you found yourself tripping your way through life, failure, 
mistake, difficulty, and you're wondering, like, why is this not working? Do you know why? Sometimes we're bumping into a stumbling block, and it's Jesus who's graciously pointing out to us, if you're building your life upon you or some other idea, it's going to self-destruct. Try building it upon me. Let's see how this goes. Could we stand together? I want to pray for you, and then I'm going to share our coffee club uh, information for this week, and then we're going to have a special prayer in our concluding moments afterwards. Can I ask you, if you're comfortable, just put your hand over your heart. There's nothing magical about it. It's just sort of a symbolic gesture that we're like, okay, God, you can touch me at the deepest places of me. Father, I ask that you would speak to our hearts in this moment. Some of us, we realize, yeah, I've, I've bumped into the stumbling block. And I need to rearrange things. I need a cornerstone. And for those that that speaks to today, thank you, God, that you mercifully and lovingly help us as a good father to bring rearrangement to our lives, to build life upon you. Father, I pray for those that need hope and peace today that you would speak and minister that to their souls right now. For those that know that they live in a broken neighborhood, go to a broken school, work with broken people in their work environment, would you let your hope and peace and help and love flow through us as a gift to the world? Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. We're just going to put up this coffee club side. Why don't you have your seat for a moment? I just wanted us to stand while we pray. Um, this will, again, for those of you who are working through this in a small group format with two other people, um, this will be made available to you online as well. Just go to our website and look for the coffee club square. Click it, and this will show up there, and it's your guide to a discussion this week. Again, we want to ask you, read through the book of 1 Peter this week. It's only five chapters. It's short. You can divide it up. You can read it all in one sitting if you want or go through it. And just take some notes on what are you noticing about what Jesus is like. If you had to describe Jesus based on what you read in 1 Peter, what would you write down? And then following that, there's an outline of five things that you and your coffee club can chat your way through and then pray together in. As uh, you ponder that, I know some of you are taking some pictures. Claire Farnell, would you join me on the stage? There's a microphone on the front row that you can grab there as well. As we conclude our service today, today is March 27th, which we have earmarked as a, a day for a special offering. We have identified this year a really important next generation priority. If you have one of our I Am The Light booklets, it's got a bunch of our missional projects and partnerships and priorities for this year listed. There's a page which has a number four on it which outlines this in particular. This year, we want to raise above and beyond our general budget an additional $15,000 that will help enable and empower a few things. Here's the reality. 85% of people who decide to follow Jesus do so as a child or a teenager. So when you and I give towards projects and priorities that help us do a great job of serving and reaching children and teenagers, we are sowing into good soil here in the Comox Valley. There are 12,000 children and teenagers in the Comox Valley. About 100 people a month are moving to the Comox Valley right now. 
there is a great opportunity in front of us. And so as we strive together to pitch in every household participating in whatever way God leads us to, five things in particular that this offering enables. Number one, the expansion of our family ministry staff. Number two, additional children, preteen and youth programming. Number three, kids' zone room and nursery upgrades. You should see our kids' zone classes and nursery. Maybe you shouldn't, actually. No, there's lots that we're thankful for and very proud of. But we want to do as best as we can in the spaces that we offer to children's ministry and to youth ministry. And so we want to upgrade some of that this year. We want to develop a parenting coaching network hub through our church and some seminars that help parents face what they're facing with their children. And we're looking to develop enhanced children's youth and camp experiences uh, this year. Our goal is 15,000, but the reality is we had a great council meeting this week. If by God's grace and your gener generosity, more came in beyond that, there's some really exciting things that we'd love to dream about doing as well. So what I'm asking you to do today, maybe you've grabbed one of these offering envelopes already. If you're giving towards this gift with a, an envelope, you can just write on it, uh, next gen priority or special offering, next generation, and drop it in one of our giving boxes on the main floor or upstairs as you leave. You can also give online. Please note it. And I want us to pray together. So I've asked Clara Farnell, who's got such a, a big heart. She's served in children's ministry in this church for many years. She's a grandma. She's a mom. She knows the value and importance of reaching our next generation. So Claire, if she has anything to share, then she's going to lead us in a prayer together over this special offering. Amen. What a great challenge today that we are where heaven meets earth. And so let's just take a minute to pray. Father God, the fact that we can call you Father denotes that there is a relationship there, that we are family, and that there is a great, great love that flows between us. And Father, as we consider this offering today, I pray, Lord, that out of the generosity that we have been given, we would be generous as well. Father, each one of us can think of people who have poured into us, the many people through all the different phases of our life that have given above and beyond to make us who we are today by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we do pray for a willing heart, willing to serve the next generation. I thank you for all those who poured into my life, and I thank you for those who have poured in by friendships, by um, giving money, by praying for us, that, Lord Jesus, we would uh, be who we are today because of that generosity of spirit for those who went before. There was a time we were the next generation. And so right now we do pray for our next generation. We pray for the teens and the children. We pray for those you are raising up to carry the gospel um, beyond where we can go. We have a ceiling, and from that ceiling, others can carry on to just bring the gospel. And so not only for those who attend in this building, but, Father, we pray for the streets we live on, for the kids and the adults or, and the teens that live on those streets. We pray for the schools we go by every day, for the kids that goes to those schools. Father, we pray for uh, the whole Comox Valley, as Mike has said, and we just ask, Lord, that through 
uh, the generosity of giving in money as well as in time, in talents, and praying that, Lord Jesus, you would have a mighty movement of your Holy Spirit and that many, many, many children would come to know you as their personal Lord and Savior um, and, and be able to call you Father as well. So, Lord, we just commit um, this giving to you. Speak to each one of our hearts the amount, the time, whatever it is that you would have us do personally, and we just give it all for your honor and for your glory. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Claire. Father, thank you so much for everybody here today. I pray your blessing on each person, every household. We are going into your world on your mission, and we declare our dependence upon you. We can't do this on our own, but thankfully, we've been formed into a new temple in which you live, so empower us as we go. In your strong name, we pray this together. And everybody said... Amen and amen. See, there's the other end, amen. That's my job. Okay, have a great day. Go enjoy some waffles, hang out. I know it's a bit wet, but you can gather under the tent or gather in the lobby area and enjoy eating and chatting together. Thanks again for listening to today's message. We hope that it encouraged you as you live out your faith in everyday life. Make sure to download our church app by typing Comox Pentecostal into Google Play or the App Store to enjoy more podcasts, Bible resources, giving options, and more.